When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, welcome back to another podcast wherein we're talking about the Raptors and the league at large to some degree. I'm Samson Folk. This is the Rapcast, all that good stuff. I'm here joined by Joe Wolfond of Joey W fame, of NBA and tennis features fame for the score. Joe, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well. I think we gotta we gotta drop the tennis features from uh, the intro. Unfortunately, it hasn't. I haven't been on that beat for a little while now. Uh, sort of came to a point where I had to dedicate my focus and attention to one thing. So uh, maybe I'll circle back to the tennis writing one day because I did really love it. But yeah, just uh, the NBA feature writing for now. When I used to think about tennis, I would think about you and Vivek. So now where do I go? Uh, Gary Nathan, like probably the best tennis writer doing it right now. He's, I mean, did you, did you ever read David Foster Wallace's piece on Nadal and Federer? Of course. Yeah. I mean, that's like the seminal piece of tennis writing, probably like people who don't like or watch or care about tennis. I feel like have brought that piece up to me in the past. Like everybody, I feel like knows that essay. He's got a ton of great tennis essays, even outside of that. Um, and even in his fiction, I feel like he wrote about tennis a lot. So yeah, uh, I've read a lot of his tennis writing, but, um, I mean like Louisa Thomas who writes at the New Yorker, she is an, I mean, she kills everything that she writes about, but tennis, especially I would say. And, uh, yeah, Gary, who's writing for racket magazine and defector now is probably the number one source for not just like tennis information because he knows a ton about the sport but just like able to convey that information in an unbelievably playful fascinating way sure so for anybody who wanted to know what tennis people you should be reading (laughs) this is now the spot david foster wallace also i watched an interview of his from like 2001 or 2002 that was so unbelievably prescient about the internet age and what it would do to people's brains and basically everything stuck there's also like a lot of really great insights about consumerism. But hey, we're here to talk about basketball. The Raptors are currently engaged in training camp. You know, exciting things are happening. Optimistic quotes are coming out. It seems like after the, you know, the down, downtrodden vibes of media day, it's kind of picking back up at, at training camp. Uh, fans seem uh, more optimistic. And basically what I wanted to do was kind of review what's being said about the team with what we actually expect to happen. And now I know some people will think that's uh, maybe a bit arrogant, but uh, the example I'll give is something like Danny Green. The reason why my name on the screen is the new Ted Lasso is because Danny Green said that, you know, Nick Nurse has a little bit of Ted Lasso in him. Daniel House, I believe, uh, said Nick Nurse isn't a two stars dribble and shoot the ball type of coach. He gets and makes sure that everyone is selfless and they play selfless basketball. For anybody who remembers, the large motivator of the Raptors offense was Fred and Pascal last year. And a lot of people um, theorized that members of the Raptors team didn't like how they were being used, didn't like that it was just, you know, a two-person offense, at least in their mind, right? And they didn't like how Nick Nurse was coaching. And yet he goes over there and the quotes are that he plays selfless basketball, they play this perfect style, and that's kind of how it happens. Um, when Fred goes to Houston, he's the perfect leader. He's the perfect. So basically, quotes are good about your team <laughs> before you start playing. And the Raptors are saying they're going to do everything better offensively. And I do want to ask you, like, what is your sniff test 
on the amount of change you expect to have coming. Yeah, I mean, what what are they supposed to say? Like, sure. yeah, our, our offense is going to be trash, but it's fine. We'll find other ways to be decent. Like, I I mean, it would be great if they were willing to be that honest and self-reflective about the situation they're in. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, like the the quotes, like the honeymoon period, whenever something major changes is always like, go back and look at the Indiana Pacers quotes about Nate Bjorkren, like the first couple weeks of his He's season coaching there. He's the yeah. best guy ever. Yeah. Um, so in terms of what we can probably expect to change, I mean, it, it's funny because the Raptors, the last couple years, I mean, so like two years ago, and then for the first two thirds of last season before they trade for Yak, and I know you know this because you've written about it, but they were one of the lowest pick and roll volume teams in the league. Then they get Pirtle and suddenly it's like, it makes sense for them to run a lot of pick and roll. They become a very pick and roll oriented offense around Fred and Jakob. And now they're back to being a team that I don't think it's going to make sense for them to run a lot of pick and roll. And I think you heard Darko talk about that after one of their first training camp scrimmages or practices where he was saying like, yeah, we're going to be oriented more around the elbows and the high post. And, you know, Yak is going to be maybe making like more things happen running some delay stuff, things like that, where you're you're leaning away from pick and roll play because frankly, you don't have the pick and roll ball handlers to make that work. We can talk about Scotty as a potential pick and roll ball handler if you'd like. I mean, you wrote enough about it, <laughs> have thought enough about it, I'm sure. Uh, and I'm sure that's something they'll explore and they'll explore pick and rolls with Dennis and probably try to run some inverted stuff with, with Pascal. Um, and, you know, obviously you can have you can have Schroeder being the screener there. It's going to be more effective to have Gary being the screener there because of his shooting gravity. But you don't have like Fred was one of the best guard screeners in the league. Like that's a big reason why those inverted actions worked as well as they did. On top of the fact that he actually had immense gravity when he was ghosting and flaring out to the three point line. So it just whether it is inverted action or your sort of standard small, big pick and roll or big, big pick and roll. If you're having, you know, like you could mm-hmm. have iterations with Pascal and Jacob and like Scotty and Jacob, like there are a lot of different combinations. I'm sure we'll see, you know, like I, I said this to you on media day, but just like snug, 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 like <laughs> run those pick and roll lower down on the floor where it becomes a lot more difficult for the defense to go under. And I, there, there are, are a few ways, I guess, that they could try to game it out where that is still a, a successful part of their offense. But I think they're going to have to find other ways to make it work. This is something that Darko had to do as he helped design the Phoenix offense. This is something that he had to do with the Memphis offense. Neither team was like these big pick and roll juggernauts when he was there. Now, Phoenix obviously got Chris Paul after he left and then, you know, it's out the bag. You're running pick and roll and a lot of Spain and Monty, you know, they, they did a lot of good stuff there, but they started out running like a ton of handoff packages. And a lot of that was done with like Aaron Baines and Devin Booker, for example. And it was a really interesting approach. And I wonder like the high post stuff, it doesn't seem that intuitive because when we think of high post actions, 0.5 basketball, the first thing that should come to people's minds is probably the Golden State Warriors and a lot of split action and stuff like that. And the Raptors, there's been a few games, I told you this at Media Day as well, but when they run split action, typically teams just drop out of it and you're kind of left to your own devices above the break. And the bad teams are the ones that played high and pressured the ball. And you let, what, Pascal Siakam back cut against the guy who's like six foot six. And, you know, Pascal is lithe and malleable and bendable to go get the ball and finish if he's being led to the room with a pass from from a seven foot one, you know, pass in. That stuff is like easy, but most teams will drop out of it, which can turn your it just is a reset then. Right. And how do you make it so that like if you're running a split action with even if you pair it with Gary and Pascal, it's like, how do you balance the floor otherwise then? Because if you put Scotty in the corner the guy, you know, it's not necessarily a pick and roll tag, but you're just going to come crowd the paint. 
it's a weak side zone, sure, or even a strong side zone, but you're going to muck up the actions. You're going to make it hard to do these things. And I wonder if how hard the Raptors are going to have to work to get shots in the back end of the shot clock, you know, because there's going to be early work. They're going to push a lot in transition. They're going to push in pseudo transition. But I wonder how much of it is like we're running a high post action with Jakob. And that means that Scotty and Pascal are running the split action so that we can put Gary and OG in the corners. And then when the team drops out of it, we have, you know, Pascal and Scotty not go straight from like a, you know, a split action, but they start running like a staggered screen for Gary coming out of the corner. And you just have to work all these machinations into trying to like flip the floor, get guys to go under and then screen them under. And it's like, the action up front is never the action. It's always to set up for what comes after the action. And it's like, you just have to work really hard to get to the advantage. Whereas we're just coming from, you know, like a a three or two month stretch of basketball where the advantage was inherent. It was like the pick and roll. And I'm curious, do you think that's, what do you think they'll be able to mine from the high post stuff in your mind? Because it, it does... They are running the proper skill sets for the bigs, but they don't have the proper skill sets for the the shooters, the guards, etc. I think it's got to be like a lot of slips, honestly, because what you're going to be seeing when you're running, you know, whether it's splits, whether it's pick and roll, like I I think the the fundamental question that the offense is going to have to face is how are you beating switches? Because that is going to be the intuitive way. Like if you're running two-man game with a lot of like-sized players, that's going to be the obvious way to counter it is just to switch it. And I, I think, you know, there are ways to do that if you're nailing all your stuff, if you're nailing the timing of it, if you're disguising stuff, flipping the angles of screens, like you wrote about Scotty rejecting. And it's like, if, you know, that can be effective, but you actually have to set the defender up for that. Like they have to be leaning the other way because you've sold it, like you've disguised it well, or like the angle of the screen is being flipped at the last second or you're just slipping out of it at the exact right time and you're creating slivers of space that way. This version of the team, like they're always going to be in the half court operating in tight spaces. So the good thing is like they have a lot of guys who are capable of threading passes through tight spaces. Like in terms of front court passing, you can't do a whole lot better than Pirtle, Siakam, Barnes, right? Like that's about as good as it gets. So the downside of that obviously is like the spacing is going to be cramped, but you know, if you want to have guys on the floor who are capable of mitigating that because they can actually make passes, whether it's going over the top or the threading bounce passes through like small windows, they can do that. But you still have to create those micro advantages. And I think that's all just going to come down to like timing, communication and like great synergy between all the players that are going to be involved in every action. I love that you brought up the switching. It allows me to reference the Scotty pick and roll piece. And so the worst pick and roll partner that Scotty had last season was by far his best screener, Jakob Pertl. 0.675 points per chance. That's abysmal. It's really terrible. And one of his best partners was one of the worst screeners. Um, I don't have to tell anybody that last year Pascal was not super interested in screening. He was just doing like the prerequisite walk towards the guy to initiate the switch. But the Scotty Pascal pick and roll where Pascal was the screener was very successful because it initiated a lot of switches and Pascal scored on switches very efficiently. This is the interesting part because immediately your mind goes there. I don't think you're a fool. I don't typically suffer them. I think you know your basketball. This team points towards a style of basketball. You can say 0.5. Jakob can come in and say, all of the tenets of the offense were changed and all this kind of stuff. But if the advantage on the floor is a mismatch, then how do you not go towards that? And I want to illustrate this by everybody seemed super interested in like 0.5 basketball because they were watching slow, ugly basketball last season. And most coaches say 0.5 for what it's worth. But this was... I just want to illustrate a point here. Maybe I'm belaboring something, but I'll say the quote I got from an NBA team scout about guarding Scotty in the pick and roll. So, quote, 
You just switch or you go under, either is fine. You don't worry much. If he isos on the switch, hopefully it's not a small on him. If it's a wing or a big, he's going to turn his back to the basket and bang around, and that's slow, and you can track that. He can score like that, but it's manageable. Off ball, just make sure you don't get back cut because he doesn't miss those passes. For the most part, though, we can just switch and he'll reset the offense. And so, end quote, by the way. So you took that quote. Which, by the way, like I, I did, yeah. yeah and yeah. like we should say that could apply. That, that quote could have been about any theoretical pick and roll ball handler on the Raptors, right? Sure, exactly. And so this is kind of like, are people ready for what might be happening? Because you were... It's a good quote. You put it on Twitter and people reacted to it like there's a lot of good stuff happening here. Like he's saying, oh, Scotty can't do X or Y, but look, Scotty can do C, W and S. And I'm like, well, people said they were tired of C, W and S. But when it's Scotty doing it, suddenly a slow ISO is acceptable. But if it was Pascal doing it, it's more of the same even though Pascal is more successful at the isolations, it's like this team probably is going to have to mine advantages in a lot of the same places that they mined advantages last year. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, I wonder where Darko's ability to innovate and the skill sets of the team kind of, you know, do they, how do they, how do they work together and mesh? Because, um, I heard, uh, you know, the last episode of Jay's Talk Plus, Blake was talking to um, John Axford, I believe, and they brought up the Mike Tyson. Everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And then Blake yeah. said it's not everyone's got a plan until you get kissed on the mouth. You know, like people are going to try and stop you. And it, it just it it makes me wonder really hard about what it's going to look like and how people like watching the team this year, because it's an entertainment product. And is just the switch of Scotty getting more possessions in a kind of slow offense that is mismatch hunting enough to sate people's, you know, lust for change, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for the entire fan base on that front, but I I think it'll ultimately just come down to how successful it is. And if it aesthetically is more of the same, and in terms of the success rate, it's more of the same. Then, yeah, I think people will start to get frustrated and feel like they were sold a bill of goods. You know, like <laughs> we, you came in here preaching this 0.5 offense and it looks the exact same as last year. But I think, I mean, look, I, I've been, I think, kind of hard on Nick Nurse the last couple of seasons. But I also think it went too far at times in terms of talking about his complete lack of offensive imagination. Like they were trying stuff. And a lot of their possessions ground down into isolation or bully ball because of all the things that we're talking about, because of the ways that defenses were able to react to the actions that they tried to run to gain advantages. And ultimately, the best advantage they could create was like, oh, okay, it's like Pascal against a slightly smaller or slightly slower defender trying to create something out of nothing late in the clock. And... You know, if they're able to find ways to avoid more of those scenarios this year, then power to them. Um, I'm, you know, like I, I don't know nearly as much about basketball strategy as Darko Ryakovich does. So I'm sure there are things that he's thinking about that I'm not right now in terms of how they're going to do that. But, you know, I think like I, in theory, really like the idea of Scotty as a DHO hub. Because I think that, I mean, that's, to me, even when we saw him do it last year, I thought it looked really good. But that is so contingent on the roster context. Like, just look at DeMontis Sabonis and the difference between what he looked like in Indiana versus what he looked like in Sacramento. Like, there's a reason that he was an all-NBAer for the first time in his career last season. And there's a good reason why suddenly things didn't work so well in the playoffs and it had so much to do with the guys who are orbiting him. And like I had uh, Caitlin Cooper on my podcast a few weeks back. And like, I asked that question to her. I was like, did you see, I mean, she's probably watched more Sabonis than anybody. I was like, did you see anything different from him last season? Or was it really just about the roster context? And she was like, it was just about the roster context. And so, you know, this team, I don't think has the weapons to 
optimize Scotty as that type of DHO hub. They don't have the movement shooting. You know, there's not like, even if you're thinking about, okay, so there's, uh, do the shooters around him have enough gravity so that say his defender can't lay back 10 or 15 feet? Like they have to play up on him because of the threat of a shooter coming off of the handoff. Is like, does a shooter have enough gravity where on those handoffs he can actually draw two to the ball and then Scotty's got a short roll opportunity out of that? Or the defender's trying to jump it and then you have the opportunity for those keeper plays. Even like when Sabonis was running DHOs with De'Aaron Fox, like Fox doesn't, like he's not this stop on a dime kind of movement three-point shooter, but he has gravity going to the basket. That's like, if you're not playing up, if you're letting De'Aaron Fox get ahead of steam coming around to DHO, then wham, he's on top of the rim in a second. And like, I, like the Raptors just have so little of that, you know? It's like maybe Grady Dick comes in and like he can be that sort of DHO dance partner right off the bat. And I, I know you've mentioned like the, the numbers in terms of the Scotty and Gary two-man game have been pretty encouraging. There are combinations that can work, but in terms of, that's where it's like, you know, I, I don't think that Scotty's ideal role is like as an initiator, you know, as a, what you would call a, a quote unquote point guard. But I don't think the Raptors have the means of kind of nudging him into the role that I think would be best for him anyway. It's so Demonis Sabonis, when he was with the Pacers in 2021-22, their team was actually worse offensively with him on the floor. As crazy as that sounds. And then one of the best offenses of all time, by the numbers, the Kings last season. The three-point shooting around Demonis Sabonis as a hub, you have almost seven attempts a game from Kevin Herter, who can shoot on movement at 40%. Keegan Murray, 41%, over six attempts per game. Malik Monk, heavy movement, heavy dynamism, can rescreen all this kind of stuff. Five attempts per game, 36%. You have De'Aaron at five, you know, 32%, but a lot of that is his pick and roll possessions. Harrison Barnes, over four at 37%. Terrence Davis, almost four, 36%. Trey Lyles, three, 36%. This is the stuff that creates the meaningful change. You have a lot more room to work in, and those, you know, you the screen ingenuity works a lot better that way too. Like this stuff is what builds out the offense, the skill sets. And of course, it takes the right coach to say, yes, we're doing this. We're leaning into this. And there's a reason I wanted to talk to Caitlin in the summer about this offensive you know, environment is like, Caitlin, you are regarded as the number one X's and O's writer. You understand scheme. You know, you are a great avatar for how and a coach would try to approach some of this stuff. And she was like, yeah, you're basically just trying to move the help defense with, you know, maybe pick and roll. And, you know, Darko did mention that at media day. And, but you are getting back to a lot of the same principles, the same advantages. And this, how do you get away from them? And this is what I wanted to talk to you about. Really, you wrote the first piece about the Raptors, the big possession ball that they were playing, trying to win by more than five possessions to create that win differential that's represented, you know, through NBA history. If you have more, if you come out on top of the possession battle by a differential of more than five, you win like 70% of your games. I don't know the exact number, but it was around that, I'm pretty sure. And the Raptors, a team that leaned super hard into creating turnovers, limiting them, and offensive rebounding like crazy, and then somehow managing to get back in transition, well, do you think they still lean super hard into those tenets? I mean, what I would like to see is them still have those tenets be part of their identity, but in a more organic way, not trying to reverse engineer it the way that we saw them do in the past, because there are things that you sacrifice in service of trying to get to those advantages. And if you're not doing it in or in an organic way, then the numbers that you just threw out there, and I don't know the exact numbers either, but I know Nick Nurse does because <laughs> he did uh, mention them at one point when he was detailing this strategy and why they were doing it. But like you skew those numbers, like you can basically throw them out the window if what you're doing is starting at, okay, we're going to, I mean, the Raptors were at plus nine, by the way, for shooting possessions per game. Like it's outlandish. 
they were at plus seven the year before when I started when when I wrote about it for the first time, and I was like, wow, this is crazy. And then they went up to plus nine last season, and like it's kind of wild to get nine additional shooting possessions than your opponents per game and still net out to a 500 team. But it makes sense when you think about what you're giving up in order to get there. And I do think we saw a bit of a, a come down in terms of like the transition defense, I don't think was quite as good last year. Yep. Um, and uh, like the, the extent to which they were being, you know, borderline reckless gambling for steals, trying to create turnovers, burned them a lot and i mean it was interesting actually because they they did they were able to scale back some of that like the corner help that was inherent to their scheme when Pirtle came over Mm -hmm. and they did that while still being able to be aggressive on the perimeter and still creating a ton of turnovers so i think that bodes well yep um but i think there probably needs to be just like a little bit more of a balance I, I do think, you know, forcing turnovers is still going to be a big part of their identity and has to be because mm-hmm. they need the transition offense. That's going to remain the case. I think with the offensive rebounding, I mean, part of that, and we talked about this early on when we first started seeing this crazy uh, possession differential, is like that was the one part of it that I could actually see as being like an organic process was uh, like they weren't, they didn't have the above the break spacing to really scare teams anyway. So kind of being less focused on above the break spacing and just like having more people below the break, able to crash, you know, closer to the rim, things like that. It's like you are almost able to turn that limitation into a strength. And I think that, you know, for the most part is still going to be the case. And (laughs) I think they'll just generally have a, you know, a lot of big bodies on the floor who are going to be inside the arc and that's going to be conducive to keeping possessions alive. Um, but, you know, it's like also what what are you doing with those extra possessions? I think I don't have the numbers in front of me now, but I remember looking at it midway through last season. And it was like they were the worst team in the league at executing after offensive rebounds. You know, we typically think of those as being ultra efficient possessions. Uh, mainly because, you know, a lot of them are just sort of like tap backs or put backs, yep. but like um, they, they just like weren't doing a good enough job. I don't think of converting those extra possessions into points. And so you're seeing this great big number where it's like, wow, that's a huge possession differential. But uh, you know, a lot of the time it was like, you know, one guy sort of like tapping it back on the glass, like trying to get his own miss back up and in three, four five times. And you still come up with an empty possession. So I, I think just because of the roster construction, it almost has to still be part of what they do. Um, I asked Darko about that at media day and he kind of acknowledged that it would still be a focus. But um, I think, I mean, I, I think especially defensively, there just needs to be a little bit more intention behind how they're defending, not like, stuff that they're doing in service of like manufacturing this gargantuan possession differential, you know, like uh, that's, I, I feel like that tilted a little bit out of whack last season. And it was also the second year they were doing it. So there were probably bound to be some diminishing returns. Like teams had a year's worth of tape on them doing all these yep. things and figured out ways to exploit it. There's this thing that they do that I'm rewatching all of Scotty's possessions, right? And these, this thing keeps happening. And a Scotty possession can end with a Scotty shot. It can end with a turnover. It can end with, you know, the ball going to somebody else and you see what happens the rest of the play. But the thing is that the Raptors, a lot of the times, especially with Scotty or Pascal, they'll get into the short mid-range area and the shot will go up. And as they get closer, the rest of the forwards all creep in. Like the spacing is not what they're going for. Everybody creeps in. And more so than like any other team. And they do it differently than Memphis does it. Because Memphis achieves a lot of the same things as the Raptors. But they do it differently. The shot goes up. And Scotty is better at hunting it than Pascal is for what's worth. But the shot goes up. And Scotty immediately plants into two feet. And is like leaping towards the rim. And Chris Boucher came in. And he's leaping towards the rim. And Precious Achua is there. And he's leaping towards his rim. And there's like three guys tapping the ball up, trying to slap it out. And that's like 
40% of their possessions. <laughs> I like it's a lot. Yeah. You watch it live, you take note of it throughout the season, you say this is the team, but you take a break, you come back to that film, you're like, wow, a lot of these possessions end up looking this way. And it's no wonder. Like they how what percentage of their own misses did they like have a shot at? Like 30%? You know? That's a three out of ten. That's a lot. And that's only including the ones they corral, the ones that they like go after and the volleyball tapping around and you're just waiting for the ball to fall into somebody's hands. It's like 50% of the Raptors misses end up being like this brutish battle under the rim. And it's no wonder that the transition defense waxed and waned. That's very tough to, to keep up. It is, however, an advantage. Like, there's no doubt that was an advantage for them. And that's yeah. th- those are the things that I think coaching can help buy in. Is like, you know, Scotty, when I talked to him at the end of season media availability, he was like, oh, I need to run and work on my cardio. I was pretty surprised that he was had a consistent answer over the course of like five months. He came back and said, I worked on my cardio. I was like, wow, that wasn't lip service. Usually it's lip service at the end of the season. Like, players don't really know yet. They haven't got their their plans necessarily even half of them were saying like we haven't talked about it yet necessarily but I was like okay but being able to press the glass and get back in transition it's possible they might be able to kind of reignite that ethic um, under a new coach with more buy-in that would be really great because they have to be able to defend in these you know conserv- more conservative schemes they have to be able to get into their base defense so that they can maximize you know, turnovers and run out and create transition. And I know this podcast is quite, you know, it's, it's pessimistic about the offense, but I still think the Raptors are going to beat their over under. I think they'll challenge for the back end. Um, and if they are a very good team, like they go north of like 43 wins even, um, that I think what they're doing is like a massive success to work around the lack of spacing. I just don't know how it's going to happen. And I know everybody tells me, like, Darko will make it happen. I like Darko. I think Darko will be able to make some things happen. But I've talked to some coaches. I've talked to some scouts. I've talked to some players. Like, this stuff, you can't just make it appear. There are skill sets. There's the defensive response or lack thereof. And I just can't wait to see it. And I don't know how far they move away from what it was, but they can't completely abandon some of the things that brought them here. And therein lies like, this is a team that's selling renewal. This is a team that's selling like a rebrand. And as they should be, you said at the top of the podcast, what are they supposed to say? But I really am interested in like the rubber meets the road aspect. Yeah, I am interested in it, but I I wish that it didn't have to be this way. Sure. Like two years ago when we first saw it, it was novel, it was innovative, and it kind of blew my mind. And I frankly marveled at the ingenuity of they have all these limitations and they're finding these very creative ways to work around them. It's super impressive. It's fascinating to watch. I also remember being on this very podcast and saying like, this is great, but if you want to take steps forward as a franchise, this can't be the feature. It can't just be you are finding creative ways to work around your very obvious flaws. Like you've got to address those flaws and turn these other things you are doing into like additive ancillary strengths, not like the main thing that you're having to do all the time because it's so arduous. Like all of this, even just like you talking about the offense and like how they were going to be able to get to the small advantages that they were going to need to create. Like even just hearing you talk about it made me tired. Like it's, it's so much work. And at a certain point, I think they're going to have to figure out. And I, I don't want to put like so much pressure on this season. It's like they don't have to figure it out right now. I think that's the point. But eventually, they're going to have to find a way to make this easier on themselves. I personally thought Dame Lillard was the way to do that. But, you know, that ship has sailed. We're moving on. And so this is what we have is like this the interesting mechanics of all of this to watch for and and to see how it's going to work. I but I couldn't believe the way Dame was discussed, by the way. 
Like the, people yeah. were pretending he wasn't one of the like unbelievable offensive engines of the age. I think now people don't have to want Dame on the Raptors, and it's a pointless hypothetical now. But like he would have simplified a ton of things. And the question, of course, is like, was that worth X going out and Y coming in? But I just thought people being like, oh, he's paid too much. You know, he's 32, like all this kind of stuff. I'm like, what the hell are you guys talking about? This guy just went for 32 points per game. And I know scoring is inflated, but this guy, if you put him in the pick and roll with Jakob, if this guy's working off of Scotty and Pascal, if, you know, whoever is going out the door, it's like, damn, that would have been crazy. But people talked talked about him like he's like over the hill, which I didn't understand. It, last year was his best offensive season and one of the best offensive seasons ever. So, yeah, I mean, I would have liked to have seen him on the Raptors. <laughs> I think he would have made a lot of this make a lot more sense, tied a lot of the pieces together in a pretty tidy way. But again, that ship has sailed. Yeah. I've talked about it enough. <laughs> I don't need to keep going down that road. But I do think it's interesting what you say about, you know, they're selling this renewal. They're talking about how they're turning the page. And that was the thing that really struck me on media day, because I think a lot of the awkward tension around the semantics of it, where it's like, well, last year we were selfish. This year, there's going to be no selfishness. Trust me. And then Pascal finds himself up there on the day as having to defend himself, like, you know, saying, I don't have a selfish bone in my body. When really, I don't think, I don't think anyone was actually saying that. I just think what it came down to was, the brass had to be up there saying this year is going to be different and had to find a way to say that without necessarily pointing to tangible things on the court because the makeup of the team and the limitations of the team are very similar, if not even more dramatic because Fred is out the door. Well, they also because are aware of that, the conception of the team that they can play into. Yeah. But it, like what I, I guess what I mean is like, and I said this on, on my podcast a couple of days ago, but it's like if Masai had gone up there and been 100% honest about what went wrong last season, and I'm not saying that like the vibe in the locker room didn't have something to do with it, but I, you know, I've always been of the mind that like winning begets good vibes more than good vibes beget winning. And so the problem was that like the team wasn't really constructed in a way that allowed them to win a ton of games. But if he'd gone up there and acknowledged that, then I think that would have been like, I would have left a lot of people shrugging their shoulders because they would have been asking what's, why is it going to be different? Well, there's also a significant incongruity. If everyone thinks like they go up there and that's why, you know, afterwards I said, selfishness is a buzzword at this press conference. I don't think there's anything. I understand why people thought, particularly in the answer to my question, his response was sloppy and I don't think it insinuated would mean that he meant to do it, but it just like it grouped Pascal in with the word selfish because I was very pointed and like, I'm not talking about Fred because he responded to my first question was like, you're talking about Fred. I'm like, I'm not talking about Fred. I'm talking about this being an, it's odd to not see an extension offer. And then selfishness comes up right away in response to that, right? About Pascal specifically. I don't think he thinks Pascal is selfish. Pascal's not a selfish player. But there's an incongruity in that everybody's like, oh, they're getting away from the selfishness. Fred left. Nick Nurse left. It's like Nick Nurse was fired. Sure, that would make sense. But they tried really hard to keep Fred. They wanted Fred on the team. The brass wanted Fred. And it wasn't Scotty that came out and said, there will be no more selfishness this year. It was Masai, the guy who tried to keep Fred. They tried very hard. And I suspect because they thought that it would it the team might lean farther into you know the wing initiation than they were comfortable with at the time you can't pay fred 40 million they made the right decision letting him walk obviously and you get to see what scotty's going to do which i think is a huge part of this season whether some of it's good whether some of it's bad you get to see it people want to see it you get to know things but it just like selfishness is a buzzword yeah. Just because people say it doesn't mean that it was like exercised. It's just like, psh, it's gone now. 
there's no more selfishness. And that's the only thing that made basketball difficult. I'm like, we're all adults here, surely. We know that like Fred didn't like Kawhi at all. We know that Kyle and Kawhi didn't get along. We know that Kyle hated Masai. And we know that like Kawhi barely talked to these guys. We know that Kawhi played his own brand of offense with Danny Green. And we know that Kyle Lowry kept the team humming elsewise. And we know there was very little going on. And that team won a championship. And immediately after winning the championship, laughed about how the hell they got through the season that they did. It's what's on the court, you yeah. know? Um, of course, buy-in vibes are great, and fans should want that. People should want your team to like each other because it's an, like, it's an entertainment thing. And also, like, part of it is, like, these parasocial relationships that's like, I like that guy. Everybody liked when Vladdy and Teo laugh in the dugout, and then Teo leaves, and everybody's like, damn, that's sad. Like, it's good to have good vibes. But I didn't understand why they felt after returning so much of the same roster that they could just say, there's no more selfishness, so everything's different. And if people think I'm being an idiot about this, just please ask yourself if you believe what the 76ers players said about Nick Nurse. Or ask yourself <laughs> if you believe what the Rockets are saying about Fred Van Vliet, right? Just yeah. acknowledge these situations in as if like I take the same approach, not just like, well, it's my guy I like who said it and it confirms my priors. So now it's good, but I'm confused about it, man. Like I know it's, you have to do PR and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. No, but you mentioned the incongruity and like there, there's also the incongruity of the, the selfishness faction of the team is gone, but also, we had way too much respect for Fred to trade him last year somewhere he didn't want to go. You know, and I think that's you get into a situation where you're sort of talking yourself in circles and tying yourself in knots because you don't have a good way to sell this new iteration of the team. Like you're trying to sell excitement and enthusiasm by convincing everybody that it's going to be different because no more selfishness. But you have to answer for the product on the court. And I think at the end of the day, maybe this isn't always 100% true because it always has to do with expectations. Like wherever your expectations are, if you're expecting the Raptors to be a 35-win team this year and they win 38 games and look like they're having fun doing it, then maybe you'll be really happy. But I think for the most part, the fans aren't going to be happy if the team's losing and it doesn't really matter how they're losing. Like (laughs) that's... I, you mentioned like Vlad and, and Teo in the Blue Jays dugout, right? It's like, it's great when the team's winning and they look like they're having a blast. But when those guys are goofing around and the team's losing, there are so many fans who are so upset about it. They're like, look at these clowns who are just goofing around in the dugout, not taking this seriously while the team's losing. And like those same fans, if the team's losing and everyone looks miserable in the dugout, would be like, look at this lifeless team. No energy, no fight. And it's like, yeah, because you're upset the team's losing and like no matter what was going on in that dugout, you'd be upset about this. So, you know, you 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 can sell optimism, I guess, in whatever way that you want or whatever way you feel like you can. But at the end of the day, it's like what's on the floor is, go- is going to be the arbiter of how successful you were. And I'm just, again, like you, I'm, I'm curious to see how they do it. But I... I can't not be skeptical about a team that last year was 25th in three-point attempt rate, 28th in three-point percentage, 25th in first-shot half-court efficiency, and now out the door is their best ball handler, best pick-and-roll playmaker, by far their highest volume (laughs) and best pull-up three-point shooter. And probably their best off ball player too their best guy to use in inverted pick and rolls like it's i like i i I just don't know how that's not going to have a huge and hugely negative impact on the on-court product yeah i don't want to belabor the fred point too much but the quick thing is like when fred and jacob were on the court they had a 96 percentile offense and when jacob was on the court without fred it was the second percentile so it's you're looking at an unbelievable swing 
and Fred's skill set was kind of what created that change. I'm very excited to see this year how they try and like where they pull their shooting from. We saw it, they did it with zones, right? It's like they worked through the corners with the zones because they needed to stretch the zone as far as they could. So they were very, very intentional about running their guys baseline, running disguised flares to get them going to the corner to try and manipulate and move zones and doing it with basically only two shooters. Like that's why even though people were like, oh, OG looks good in the middle of the zone. It's like, don't put OG in the middle of the zone because you need him on the outside of the zone. Everything will be about placement and role. And I'm sure because there's a lot of talent on the roster, there's like something to be done that gets you north of 25th in the half court. And that's, but even like the Raptors were 26th and 25th the past two years, 20th the year before. Getting north of 25th would be a huge accomplishment. I don't know how they do it, but the bones of this team say it's going to be a complicated, difficult, and grimy offensive process, and it should be seamless on defense. Like, this team should be able to pull so much strength. That defense and my optimism in it, because people talk about offense. They say defense, but they talk about offense. Like, people for the most part, can't say, okay, this is happening defensively. This is why it's working. Like, I can't believe they're meeting the nail, a dribble earlier than the year before. And, you know, the rotation out of the back end is like so much better. It's like, that's not the reality. But maybe people will be more interested in defense because once again, this team, that's how they're going to have to achieve things. Um, It seems like easy. They're so big. They have so much talent on that end. And if they do have buy-in, they big teams with talent defensively who care a lot about defending always, always defend like hell in the regular season and defending like hell in the regular season is a really good recipe for, um, to, to find a floor. I just wonder how far their, um, offense takes them towards the ceiling. And I suspect not super far, but I don't know. Yeah. I was thinking also in terms of like the, interplay between offensive rebounding and transition defense just because you brought up memphis and how they go about it kind of differently and i was like yeah they go about it differently because they have just one guy who is like the like the singular most dominant offensive rebounder possibly that we've ever seen and he can just do most of that work and you know like jacob is not steven adams but he's a really good offensive rebounder yeah and so i wonder if because you know the, the last couple of years they've been having to do a lot of that work crashing from the wings and maybe with Pirtle there to just do a lot of the heavy lifting on the offensive glass, you can scale back the wing crashing and commit a little bit more to transition defense in that way without totally sacrificing your identity as a team that bludgeons the offensive glass, you know? Yeah. Um, that, that could be part of it, but uh, yeah, I do think, I mean, look, we saw him coming in transform their defense last year and that is what gives me a lot of optimism that they can be really, really strong at that end this season. And, you know, you're hearing Darko come in and talk about wanting to protect the paint and limit corner threes. And the Raptors did do a much better job of limiting corner threes once Pirtle got there last year. So I think that should be pretty workable. Yeah. Um, what, do you, what do you think about, about Scotty on defense? I, I feel like... Like so much of the play, like with him this offseason has been talking about like what his offensive development is going to have to look like. But I don't know. He's been a disappointment defensively, right? To this point yeah. in his career. I know it's still super early, so maybe disappointment's the wrong word to use. But I don't like disappointment because I don't care about the the wrong pre-draft takes. Because the scouts I talked to didn't tell me to look for that. Uh-huh. They were like... They they're like he the one through five stuff. What what do you mean? Whoever says that isn't watching. Or you know the the thing I always say is like you're guarding De'Aaron Fox, not the Gardner Webb's lead point guard. Like something like that, right? It's a lot of guys can in a flash step out on a college guard, especially with a smaller floor where the help is way closer, and you know it's just things move slower. None of the scouts I talked to said that, and people could go listen to the 
the podcast that came out right after. Um, but nobody said that Scotty was going to be a dominant defender on ball. They said like a lot of the stuff lied in his ability to like read what the offense was doing, track it as an off ball guy and be available and help. And that is something that I think has waxed and waned for Scotty. It's not something that's been super consistent, but it's something that he clearly has a talent for. And for the second season in a row, he won his defensive minutes. And the Raptors did only come in at what, like 16th defensively last season? 12th? Oh. I think they might have, yeah, they might have gotten up to like 12th by the end of the year. I think 12th offensively, I think they came in at, and defensively, I think 16th. And they were fifth from the time that Jakob was there. Like they were really good defense. And they were 20th in uh, corner three attempt rate, I believe, after Jakob went there, after being 29th, maybe, or 30th. Um, so positive stuff, but Scotty, I think is really encouraging as like a just not point of attack. I like yeah. when he's in space. I like when he can be like a massive wing who can help out on the glass, close out possessions. And also not that he has a huge correlation with like winning the rebound battle on defense, but, and also that he can help out and like block, you know, be a, be a rim deterrent in a pinch. That stuff is super good. And he's thick. You know, there should be an avenue to him being like pretty stout over the next, you know, however long of his career. Like there's a bunch of good things happening. It's just if you were when Scotty got drafted, somebody who said, oh, this guy will lock down everybody. Like look at him. He just like he guards up. He slaps the floor. And now he's got everybody in the torture chamber. And then if you were the person after his rookie season who said, this is an offensive star, it was like, so you didn't watch him in college defensively. That's how you came to that idea. And then if you thought he was an offensive star, you didn't see in his rookie season that like a ton of those points came from offensive rebounds, transition and broken plays. And you don't just hand that guy the keys. And the reason why I watched all of his pick and roll possessions was to see like, what do the keys look like? And it wasn't very good. That doesn't mean Scotty isn't like, going to make an all-star game that doesn't mean you know good things aren't coming for him and he's worthy to build around it's just like people have been saying things about his game and just wish casting on him instead of just talking about what he's good at because people don't like saying oh he's the best offensive rebounder in his class and it's incredible that that's coming from a wing why isn't that cool to talk about or the fact that like you know the reason why i tracked every single one of his passes is like he is one of the most uniquely gifted passers in the world. He delivers passes of the highest value. But ev who wants to talk about passes that don't become assists? You know, it's like... Yeah. And also, we talked about his really encouraging, you know, two-week stretch as like a DHO hub. And, you know, there's a reason that the sixth most efficient um, handoff pairing is the Gary plus Scotty thing is because, like, Scotty has a knack for it. But these things aren't as exciting as saying like he's Giannis or like LeBron is a big initiator. So Scotty can be it's like you can wish cast, but yeah. there's also real parts of his game that are exciting and good. And defense is a big part of that. I think he does a lot of things really well, as long as he's not miscast as like this stab stepper around screens, going to bottle up a point of attack you know initiator or something like that i'm rambling at this point but no it's fine i mean i would love to see less of him at the point of attack this season i just don't think that that's playing into his strengths at all but you know to the point about the conversation around scotty becoming overly binary and like a little bit poisoned i just like i feel like i've started to come across as like this big scotty hater when in reality i feel like what i've been trying to hammer is like, I don't think that giving him the keys to this particular team's offense is necessarily setting him up for success. And, I, you know, to some people that comes across as being heretical, but like, that's that's kind of how I feel. I would love to be proven wrong about that. There's Like, I really would, but... There's an interesting thing here that I, I want to ask you about. So when I was, I was asked this by Steph No and Larry Golden when we were talking about the Bulls, the offensive context for Scotty to thrive. And I thought about it and I said, well, you know, Siakam was put in a terrible context too. 
and it made for some really unique progressions in his game. Like he's one of the best passers in the front court, not because, you know, not because he was playing with Kyle Lowry, but because he wasn't because he was like working out of a phone booth all the time. And he's really fantastic at keeping a live dribble with guys, a secondary defender attacking it and then initiating his switch again. And he is just phenomenal dragging guys and kind of shifting the defense in the middle of the court and feeling comfortable in the most cramped areas. That's really cool. And that doesn't happen if the team isn't, you know, in a terrible place offensively. But here's the thing. He develops that part of his game. And then they ask him if he can fit into this other type of offense because he's been playing, you know, isolation basketball. That was they at their behest. They're saying, well, we have to score points. And he's saying, well, I'll work out of a phone booth and see what I can do. And now, and even like when I, you know, Mike wasn't bad about it, but he said like, well, Pascal plays like his way. And he and I on the outside looking in episode of the Wizards, I was like, I don't think he does. I think Pascal, as far as guys who play a lot of isolation, is one of the few players who has shown like an overt willingness not only to do it game to game to like switch out of the isolation stuff, but a guy who has a very clear track record of succeeding with a minuscule touch time and, and just completely dominating with his motion off ball. And yet you make him develop this way. And then you tell him like, this is slow, bad basketball. We need to see if you can do it. Otherwise it's like, well, I hope you don't make Scotty do the same thing. But the truth is, Scotty, most of his points in the half court come from an offensive rebound or they come from him getting in isolation, throwing his butt into a defender and kind of wiggling into space and seeing if he can hit a push shot. If people are saying like, this is not the way to play basketball, then the context could create a lot of unique skills for Scotty. But if the Raptors are just going to say like, this isn't good, this is how we want to play at the end of it, then it's not fair to him either, I guess. No, and I don't think it will go that way. Like, this is where we just go into messaging and how that's what a lot of that media day was really about at the end of the day. It's like, I would imagine that in his heart of hearts, Darko recognizes that maybe he's not going to be able to implement all of his offensive principles in exactly the way that he would like to with this roster. I'm sure if you gave him true serum that he would cop to that. Uh, and and I, I'm sure he still welcomes the challenge of trying, you know, like I think that like he shows, I think, genuine enthusiasm and excitement about the prospect of coaching this team and trying to get the best out of it. But yeah, there are, are certain concessions that are going to have to be made. And I also like even though I recognized that it was mostly just messaging, I bristled a little bit about. Like, I don't even know if you want to say that it was heat that Pascal was taking in in some of those media day pressers. But like, you know, the idea that he was part of the problem and not the solution with the way the team played offense the last couple of years. Like, I I think he would have been perfectly happy to be part of a free flowing offense where the touches he were he was getting were like more on the move against a tilted defense, like able to you know, extend advantages rather than constantly having to create them. But he was just doing what was necessary. Like he was salvaging broken possessions and possessions that went nowhere because there was nobody else on the team that could do it. And I think, you know, I don't necessarily think that that was like how he wanted to play basketball. It was like him recognizing that that's what the team needed out of him. So, yeah. It's, it is tough. And like, that's what being vague you know, that it begets, you know, if you're vague, people start assigning. And that's why, like, in this conversation, we're trying to not listen to too much of it, right? Like, don't swim through the vague aspect of and say, I wonder what this means. It's like, if you keep saying selfishness, 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 who was your number one usage player last year? Like, you you should be more intentional about the way you speak, probably. And the fact that Pascal's name didn't really get brought up without being asked about like the best player, like an all NBA player on the team wasn't just offered up comp in a complimentary fashion. It was like, I, I guess that surprises me a little bit. It doesn't necessarily mean anything bad. It was just like, hmm, 
I wonder I wonder why that didn't happen because other players were brought up. Like Darko brings up Jakob Pertl if you ask him about what he ate that morning. You know, <laughs> like yeah. I, why why wouldn't other things happen that way? Is those are curiosities, but curiosities are very tough to dive into and derive meaning from. It's kind of yeah, and I mean, I like the, how can I take anything away from all of that other than Darko was not hired to coach a team with Pascal Siakam on it. Like when you he- see and hear stuff like the Raptors are holding off on offering Siakam an extension, haven't even talked about it apparently this offseason. Not apparently. Because they want to see how he fits in the offensive system of the coach they just hired. Like if they had been planning for Pascal to be part of that team, those conversations would have happened already. They would have talked about how Pascal was going to fit in the offense, in Darko's mind. And they would have broached the topic of an extension by now. They just would have. So I, that's that, that's the only conclusion that I am left with here is like that he wasn't really part of the plans. And now they're left kind of having to try and figure it out because before hiring Darko and apparently making all these plans with Pascal not part of them, didn't do enough of their due diligence to recognize what was actually going to be out there for him on the trade market and haven't been able to get a sufficient return. And now they're sort of stuck in this awkward in-between. It's it's certainly awkward, I think. And so if anybody wants my you know opinion, I do think, and I, I think that the Raptors tried to trade Pascal to Cleveland. I th- like after the, the Tampa season, I think that that happened. I think that teams have been talking about Pascal. The Raptors have talked about Pascal a few times over the past few years. And I think that like there was plenty of interest to play around with Atlanta. Like there were, there were players they wanted, of course. They had Kobe in, Kobe Bufkin twice, you know, for the draft workouts, for example. Adrian Griffin, there's a reason he was brought up like and talked about. Um, he's been talked about, like, of course he has. And I, I just hope we don't do like smile tracking or whatever. Like Pascal is playing basketball with guys he's known for a long time. When he's on the court, he's going to smile and have fun. That doesn't mean that like everything is perfect player. Like just imagine yourself in your own life. If something's not going well, are you incapable of smiling? And then imagine that you're somebody who gets filmed, you know, like you're, you're going to be caught smiling, you know, all this kind of stuff. I just hope we, I don't want to do too much body language stuff. It's um, yeah. not conducive. I don't think it's, it's a tough place to be. Um, who knows? It's, if they haven't talked about the extension yet, I don't think that they will um, sign the extension, but you know, and Michael Grange was on the Raptor show, what, like two weeks ago. And he said, that he thinks Pascal and his team would jump at an extension if it was given to him. And, you know, I guess we'll see. But we've, this isn't a very uh, concise podcast. It's mostly (laughs) just myself and Joe trying to parse through, like, how much are the words indicators of what's about to come and how much are the the play styles and skill sets and how much do words change how those things interact? I'm, I'm very interested to see. But I'll leave by saying I think that the Raptors will be better than a lot of people think this year, but maybe not better than a lot of the fan base thinks. Although I've seen very, very polarized um, opinions. Like I see people who say just like 50, like they're winning 50 games. (laughs) And I see people who say like they don't clear 30. Mm -hmm. I don't think either of those things happens. Like that's a big big spread. Yeah. I mean, they... Unless they like get off to a not great start, they decide it's just time to bite the bullet. They trade Pascal. Then I can see them not clearing 30. But if if they're just going through the season with the roster they have now and no significant injuries, yeah, I think they'll land somewhere between 30 and 50. Wouldn't it be funny if they got off to a bad start and then they traded Pascal and then Masai was like, there's no more selfishness on this team. <laughs> oh man what a word it just they it must have gotten said between media and you know media and Masai. and this is Masai. this is his fault because he's the one who said selfishness at the trade deadline um but the amount of times it's been said since then 
a lot. Like when Houston, nobody walked in and said, Hey, Fred, uh, you're pretty selfish from what I hear. <laughs> you know, um, nobody was like, Nick, uh, everybody in Toronto says you're like a, a terrorist in the locker room. You know, <laughs> it's just, um, they're just like, Hey, is James Harden playing? And he's like, Oh, well, you know, they're like, you didn't answer my question. Is he playing? Um, yeah, it's it's interesting to see. Joe, any parting shots before we get out of here? Uh no, not really. Uh this was I don't know. I feel like I got some things off my chest that I felt like sure. I needed to. <laughs> and uh I felt like it was important for me to to sort of wade through a lot of the uh a lot of the messaging that we talked about and sort of parse what was actually going on there because I feel like it would be very easy to read it all in a particular way. Yeah. And I actually think that, you know, the, the reason behind all of this is a lot more simple than people want to make it out to be. And um, that's that, you know, the, there have been issues with the team construction over the last couple of years. It's, it's, and I think there, yeah. Um, the, the interesting thing I think is that, from what I see, people will either sift, like some people look at it and say, ooh, don't like that. Like, just don't really like how that's working out. Don't like what's being said. They get a vibe from it, right? And then there's people who sift through it in the negative lens. And this is this is how you get polarized stances. This is even in people who are in relationships, right? It's like, if you don't filter things through a charitable lens and you filter them through a negative one, Basically what happens, and this is in debate as well, people use this, is like you filter one thing through a really negative lens to create an outsized negative opinion of something. And then you make that your stance to continue making further negative leaps. That's that's what happens. People will create something that's like not realistic and overly negative about a person, a thing or whatever. And then that becomes the baseline. And then they work from there. This is true. I can work from this negative position. And they can, you can actually keep following that process until what you're talking about is completely unrecognizable to somebody. And the same thing goes positively. It really depends the way you look at it. You can, I have seen people get themselves to any position. And I'm sure somebody is looking at myself and yourself and saying, how the hell did they get themselves to that position? The polarity is what makes it interesting, I suppose. Joe, thanks for joining on uh, to wade through all the the muck, I suppose. Um, if anybody, no tennis features, none of them. <laughs> but if anybody wants NBA features, um, Joey W on Twitter, he tweets out his work. I have to go and retweet Lewis's Dame piece and then read it. Uh, that everybody's been talking about so that I can say, damn, if only. Um, yeah. How's that feel, Joe? Like a podcast? Feels like a podcast. Thanks for having me on, brother. Hell yeah. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.